This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The country is still reacting to the election of Donald Trump. And next week, we'll continue this discussion by focusing in on particular policy questions under a Trump presidency. But today is Veterans Day, and an especially meaningful one to many. Coming up, we're going to hear from a Connecticut man who's committed to preserving the oral history of World War II veterans. But first, this December 7th marks 75 years since Japan attacked the U.S. Navy base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, killing more than 2,400 Americans, injuring more than 1,000, and pushing the U.S. into World War II. New York Times bestselling author Craig Nelson has written a new comprehensive book about the attack on Pearl Harbor, from the events leading up to it to the consequences after. His book is called Pearl Harbor, From Infamy to Greatness. Craig Nelson joins us from NPR Studios in New York. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lucy. I was at a dinner party, and I mentioned your book, and the host asked me, what more can be written about Pearl Harbor that hasn't been written before? There have been so many books, movies, documentaries. How is your book different? Well, this is a very funny thing when historians talk to civilians because (laughs) civilians think that, you know, history can be put to bed and once you write it, it's all done. And in fact, uh, one of my books was on going to the moon. And when I talked to Neil Armstrong, he said, oh, everything that needs to be written has already been written. But in fact, that is the opposite of true. And for historians, history is liquid, you know. So the last definitive history of Pearl Harbor came out, was researched 50 years ago. And, and, and in that time, we've had a whole bunch of things happen. Uh, sig- significantly, the men who were teenagers when they survived Pearl Harbor uh, were able to live many decades later and surmount their terrible PTSD problems and be able to remember what happened that day. We're able to find out details of what the Japanese government was going through, which they've kept from us because they were embarrassed by it. And we've seen that we've had seven decades of peace because of what happened there. So it's quite a, it's quite a story. There's plenty to write about. As a historian, how do you go about researching all of this? Well, it's very easy. You, you you pick a couple of popular books to see what the general reader knows, and at the back of all those books are notes and, and bibliographies, and then you read all of those things, and at the back of those are notes and bibliographies, and then you read all of those things. <laughs> and finally, you get to the fundamental, the archives, and the archives for us are like heaven. And one of my favorite moments was I went to the... Uh, legislative history archives, which are the back door of the National Archives in Washington. The front door is where they have the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And the back door is where all the real work gets done. And you go in there and you ask for the federal investigations of Pearl Harbor documents, and there have been nine of them. And they arrive on their own trolley. Think of a filing cabinet 48 feet long. That's how many there are. So it's it's quite a monument you, you come to, and that's the sort of fundamental archive moment. And what kind of team do you work with to go through those archives? Well, because uh, I had a deadline, a very tight deadline, because we wanted to reach this 75th anniversary, I hired almost a dozen people for this book. I hadn't done that before. And it worked out fantastically because they were all graduate students or or, um, or, or women who'd left the workforce and were coming back as scholars. And, and so uh, some were in Japan and some were in Hawaii and some were in New York and some were in Washington. And uh, in fact, a, a little over a year ago, the book that you have in your hands, which is about 600 pages, was then over a million pages of documents. And sometimes <laughs> I still feel like I'm living in that million pages of documents era in my head. 
It's a very compelling read. Talk the listener uh, through what you found in terms of, of the documents within the Japanese government in the days, the months, and the days leading up to December 7th, 1941. Well, the the really shocking thing we learned was that uh, Americans has always been taught that the Japanese were very similar to the Nazis. They were this unstoppable force bent on world domination. And actually, we found through reading the diaries of these leaders and, and through seeing the history and the timeline that they were incredibly chaotic. And that, if, uh, in fact, starting in 1931, a very small group of militant officers were able to take over the course of the country by using group violence and using their own army resources and assassinations. So they took over this part of China uh, called the Manchurian Incident in uh, 1931. And when the prime minister and the foreign minister said, you violated international law, you need to back off, you need to stop doing that, their, uh, their team assassinated them. And they would assassinate and kill Japanese leaders over the next 14 years. And so Japan would have 15 prime ministers over 14 years, meaning 15 entirely new governments. The army was fighting with the navy. The army was fighting with the civilian government. And essentially, no one was in charge. And, and one of the conclusions I reach is that it's very difficult for America to have a defense strategy against a foe which has lost its mind. So a lot of chaos on Japan's side. Um, and then you also talk a lot about the steps and the warnings that were given uh, to, the, to the U.S. officials before Pearl Harbor. How did this attack still happen? Well, the, uh, the fundamental diplomacy problem is that while Japan was utterly chaotic and they were negotiating with new prime ministers all the time, on America's side, the military was wildly exaggerating a military strength in the Pacific. They would say, oh, Hawaii is the Gibraltar of the Pacific. We have 43,000 servicemen there. No one would dare attack us. Japan is nothing compared to us. And, and in fact, the opposite was true. At that moment, the American military was 14th in size in the world. It was after Sweden. Our uh, soldiers were armed with 1903 Springfield rifles, and we had torpedoes that couldn't hit anything and bombers that couldn't bomb anything. So this, uh, and this sort of belligerence and this sort of hubris <clears throat> meant that uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Cordell Hull, his Secretary of State, were negotiating with Japan in this harsh, belligerent manner. Uh, and and they kept this up. And so we were at loggerheads with them until December 5th, 1941, about a month before the attack, when Marshall and Stark at the Army and the Navy finally admitted that things weren't going so well. And in fact, Japan was much more powerful than us in the Pacific. And Roosevelt and Hull needed to play for time. And you could actually see Roosevelt trying everything he can think of to soothe the waters with Japan and it just being too late. Mm. I'm speaking with Craig Nelson. He's an author and historian. He has a new book out about Pearl Harbor as we go towards the 75th anniversary of this day that led the U.S. into World War II. The book is called Pearl Harbor, From Infamy to Greatness. Your book also has some very compelling personal stories. Tell us the story of Doris Miller. Well, uh, 
One fantastic moment happens aboard the West Virginia where Doris Miller, who's a mess hall attendant, meaning he's essentially cleaning up in the kitchen after uh, everyone else has eaten. He's an African-American from Texas. And even though he's not allowed to sign up for the Navy, he's allowed to have this low-level job. And when the attack happens, he's aboard a battleship, the West Virginia, and another man says, why don't you pass me the ammunition and I'll fire these guns at the Japanese planes? And Doris Miller says, "Uh, no, thank you. I think I'd like to fire my own guns. And he's actually credited with taking down at least one Japanese plane. And he was awarded the Navy Star for that. But three years later in the Philippines, Doris Miller died. And the fact that he only won the Star and not the Medal of Honor, people felt, many people felt was a cause of racism. And he became, because of this, a hero of this nascent civil rights movement, and he directly led to Truman integrating the services in 48. So it's an incredible story. So you talk about some of the American uh, servicemen, but also um, the Japanese. Um, Can you tell us about the dive bomber, uh, Zenji Abe? This is one of my favorite stories of Pearl Harbor. After the war, uh, one of the lead dive bomber pilots, Zenji Abe, learned that Japan had not declared war before attacking Pearl Harbor. And he thought this was a terrible ethical violation of the Bushido spirit of the Japanese military. And he decided he needed to try and make amends. So he spent many years traveling across Japan, tracking down the surviving members of the attack force. And he got them all that he could to sign a letter of apology. And he comes to America with his letter, and in his very poor English, he arrives at the home of one of the leaders of the Pearl Harbor Survivors Association. And he explains all of this and tries to give the man the letter. And the man tells him he can stick his letter where the sun don't shine and slams a door in his face. But Zenji Abe will not be deterred. And he starts arranging for Japan uh, pilots to appear with him at Pearl Harbor Survivor reunions on December 7th in Hawaii. And finally, through sheer determination. They they meet a man named Richard Fisk, who was a bugler aboard the West Virginia as well. And uh, Fisk not only survived Pearl Harbor, he survived uh, Iwo Jima, of course, the famous flag picture in American history. But Iwo Jima was, was like a month straight of Pearl Harbors. And Fisk was so damaged by this uh, incident that he had a visceral hatred for the Japanese. But for some reason, when he saw the Three little old men like himself uh, at that moment, also a little old man. He just ran over and started hugging them. It just sort of all fell away. And Abe and Fisk developed a friendship where Abe would finance Fisk going to the Arizona Memorial at Pearl Harbor once a month, laying down a white and a red rose in honor of each nation's dead, and playing taps in both Japanese and English. And uh, the, the last reunion before he died, Fisk uh, met a Japanese tourist who fell to his knees and burst into tears. And Fisk said, oh, don't cry. Uh, We were soldiers. We just did what we had to do. And besides, my daughter married a Japanese guy, so what can I do? What a poignant story. Um, that Thank you for sharing that. You know, when we think a lot about Pearl Harbor. We do think about um, the American um, servicemen. Um, so few are, are still with us, these veterans of, of World War II. But to, to hear um, from the other side, um, you know, the soldiers that fought um, against the U.S. in Pearl Harbor. So many ugly things about war when we think back. And um, the effects of Japanese Americans, um, how they were treated. Can you talk about how you uh, point that out in the book? 
Well, it's really astonishing how this all happened because um, her husband Kimmel, the head of the fleet, uh, insisted that there were uh, saboteurs operating against him, and that's part of why this catastrophe happened. It happened because he's an unimaginative uh, officer. But anyway, uh, 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 and the Japanese were better than us at that moment. But anyway, husband Kimmel tried to blame it on local saboteurs. And when the report of this came out, it terrified the head of defense on the West Coast, whose paranoia triggered the Japanese-American internment on the West Coast. Meanwhile, in Hawaii, practically no one was interned. About a thousand of Japanese were were rounded up because they had ties to the government and to the military. But the vast population living on Hawaii lived, and in fact, many of them volunteered to serve in Europe, and they became a highly awarded group of uh, Asian American, Japanese Americans serving U.S. forces in Europe. It's an amazing story. Meanwhile, about 100,000 Japanese Americans um, in the mainland were um, put in these camps. Yes, because of this basically one man's paranoia, 110,000 were interned, and, and that's a horrible story. Another, another amazing story is uh, a man named Sterling Kale, who five years after Pearl Harbor is uh, on the beach with his new two-year-old son, and a rogue wave washes up and drags the little boy into the water. And Sterling runs to save him, and the minute his feet hit the water, he freezes and is paralyzed mm-hmm. because... The last time he went swimming was on December 7th when he was pulling corpses out of the water at Pearl Harbor. And he is so traumatized by that memory that he cannot save his little boy. But luckily, the family had adopted a Canine Corps veteran, a German shepherd who dived in and saved the child. But from that moment on, Sterling Kale could never even walk by a beach. He was so traumatized. And one of the things I tried to not do was sanitize what actually happened in the attack because I think we don't have enough empathy for what people returning from war have gone through. And I think really confronting it in yourself is one way to do that. Um, The scene about um, after the attacks and just the fuel on top of the water and and what it must have been like for those um, many sailors that were, were lost that day. It was so sanitized, it was very difficult for us to find these pictures. Mm -hmm. And we finally found one that we included in the book. And you see these enormous smoke uh, smoke fires Mm -hmm. billowing up these giant black columns. And it it looks... Fantastical! You can't believe it's real. And the when some of the survivors told me, you know, that because all the fuel tanks were full when the battleships were torpedoed, it exploded into almost a six-inch covering of oil on that water, and all of it ignited. And many of the men who were teenagers, the average age on Oahu was 19, and the men at Pearl Harbor were even younger because the officers were away in their homes. Uh, so when these very young men jumped off the boat into this oil, ignited them like matchsticks. And people said it just looked like the end of the world. And one image that really stuck out was a man looked out and saw all the white sailor caps with their names stenciled in them floating in the water in between these smoking fires. Mm. You you spoke earlier about the importance of history and how just because one book is written doesn't mean we we shouldn't keep reflecting and learning and looking at more historical records about, um, you know, a day like the attack on Pearl Harbor. Can you talk about the consequences of this event, how it still influences us today? Well, I believe that Pearl Harbor is the most important 
moment in modern American history because it's really the birth of everything we think of the United States today, especially our global position. It made us the number one superpower. It made us create this enormous military. It made us start the giant CIA and NSA uh, intelligence agencies. It led to the creation of our nuclear arsenal. It led to the birth of World War II. Uh, excuse me. It led to the birth of, of the United Nations. And uh, it led to an amazing ending to World War II because for the first time in world history, a victor of a giant global conflict didn't demand treasure and territory. We did reverse reparations. We used uh, foreign aid to rebuild Asia and Europe. And because of this, there's an incredible personal story in the fact that at the beginning of this book, the head of the army, George Marshall, and the secretary of state, Cordell Hull, are not that good at their jobs. They're really sort of uh, two of the key figures who uh, really led to Pearl Harbor happening where they could have stopped it. But by the end of the book, both of them are Nobel laureates. Cordell Hull for hoping to start the United Nations, and George Marshall for the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe. And I really think this legacy of the United States, which, you know, many of these things that we have that I'm talking about, the military and the intelligence services, are two-edged swords, but in seven, seven decades, we've never had a World War III. And that was the great legacy, I think, of Pearl Harbor, is that we've kept another global conflict like that from happening. Um, before we go, uh, Craig, I wanted to ask you, you know, I'm talking to you in the 15th year since 9-11, um, any parallels to how our country reacted to that terrorist attack um, when we look back at the attack on Pearl Harbor? It is almost an incredible parallel of mirrors between those two events. Almost everything that you remember happening on 9-11 had happened at Pearl Harbor. Like, for example, if you remember uh, right after 9-11, there are a number of films and pictures online of people jumping from the towers, and all of that was scrubbed away. Uh, the same thing happened at Pearl Harbor. Roosevelt felt that if people knew the depths of the devastation, they would be crestfallen and wouldn't be able to fight. So he announced that the deaths were 300 when, in fact, they were 2,403. And there was sort of a sanitizing. If you read descriptions of the attack, a lot of it was cleaned up. A lot of the descriptions of what happened on 9-11 are cleaned up. And But mostly... Uh, they shared two things. Number one, they shared an enemy that we had sort of treated with disrespect uh, and felt that we had been they had been condescended to and not treated as they should be. And they also were attacks that were so far outside the can of American leaders that they couldn't be really prevented. That essentially, no one at Pearl Harbor, none of the Americans involved, imagined that the Japanese could do such a thing. And at 9-11... Very few American leaders imagine that some Arabs in Afghanistan could do such a thing. So I think the next attack that comes, and I think we will have another one, will be just as out of the blue. Craig Nelson is a historian and author of several best-selling books. His latest is Pearl Harbor, From Infamy to Greatness. Thank you, Craig, for talking with us. Th thank you, Lucy, and thank you, Connecticut. When we come back, we'll talk with the Connecticut man who has spent more than two decades recording the stories of World War II veterans. We'll hear their stories next. This is where we live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. As we heard from historian Craig Nelson, this year marks the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, the attack that officially launched the U.S. into World War II. Sixteen million Americans served during this time. How many are still alive today? Just 620,000, according to the federal VA. 320 of them die each day. And when they pass, their stories of service often disappear with them. Think back to members of your family who served in World War II or other wars. How many of them have been open to talking about their wartime experiences, even with their loved ones? New Britain resident Aaron Alson's father was a lieutenant in the U.S. Army. It was his story that led Aaron on a more than two-decade journey to record the oral histories of other World War II veterans. Aaron Alson, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for having me. So tell me um, again about your father and where this passion came to record the stories of veterans. My father was a wonderful storyteller. And when I was a kid, all the stories that he told about World War II were mostly humorous. He, he had never been in a battle before, so he stuck his head up and he got wounded. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, uh, he, it was humorous to him. But when he passed away in 1980, I was 30 years old. And I realized that I'd forgotten most of his stories. I bought a little tape recorder to take when he was in the hospital, and I went to visit him, and I left the tape recorder home. So I thought, oh, I'll do this later. I wanted to get his war stories down on tape, and he passed away two weeks later, and I never got the chance. Seven years later, that's 1987, I found a newsletter addressed to him from the 712th Tank Battalion Association, and I thought, gee, I'll write to this newsletter and see if anybody remembered him. So I wrote to the newsletter, and I got a letter back saying, I didn't know your father, but we're having a reunion. If you come to the reunion, you know, I'll take you around. We'll see what we could find. So that was... In 1987, I went to this reunion, and I met three people who remembered my father. All I remembered was the name of a buddy of his who was killed and the name of the town in Germany where he was wounded the second time. And with these three men who remembered my dad, two of whom within the next two years had passed away, but all the stories he told when I was a kid came back to life. But they had a hospitality room, and they had an open bar, and they supplied all their own booze, and they would have beer and peanuts and such, and they'd sit around at tables, and I would walk into this hospitality room in the middle of a story, and it was like somebody put crazy glue on my feet. You know, I was riveted until the end of the story, and these were not stories of blood and guts. Uh, I, I remember the first story that I walked into the middle of was this fellow talking about all the different ways that he tried to avoid. He was from a small town in Indiana, Argos, Indiana. All the different ways he tried to avoid seeing the friend of a buddy who from his hometown he had gone into the service with who was killed on the, same, on the first day of combat. And finally his father you know, said, son, you have to talk to her. And, you know, he went down and they they met uh, his mo- the friend's mother and he talked to her. He didn't tell her how he died. He, he wasn't there. But, you know, it, it meant so much to the family. So anyway, just hearing these stories, 
I had the tape recorder with me, and I sat down and I did an interview with the sergeant my father reported to. My dad was a replacement, and that was it. But I went back two years later in 1989, and I never missed another reunion. I, you know, I would just sit down and say, would you tell me that story I heard in the hospitality room? And after a couple of years, you know, I, I could say, were you in the horse cavalry? Were you at Dillingen? You know, I began to refine the questions. So you, so you learned a lot from just sitting down with these veterans. Were you someone who'd paid attention to the history of World War II before, or just from hearing these first-person accounts, it all made started to like you know stick with you? I knew so much about World War II that I thought that the Battle of the Bulge was an American offensive. The Battle of the Bulge was the last major German counteroffensive. So I knew very little about uh, World War II. Why do you think these veterans um, were open to talking with you? Because my father having been one of them, and they were so close that it was like family, and it was like somebody in their own family showing an interest. Like now, you know, often a grandchild will, you know, grab their grandfather and say, tell me about the war, and now it's a (laughs) great-grandchild. But, uh, you know, I I was accepted almost as a member of their family, and they were so pleased that somebody would show an interest, you know, in what they had done. You said you brought a, a tape recorder to that um, to that reunion, that first reunion you went to. Yes. So you're a copy editor. That's your career. How did you How did you go about figuring out? Okay, well, I'm going to try to get permission first of all to record your story, but to get these men comfortable to tell you these stories, knowing that they're being recorded. Well. They were much more relaxed. Sometimes, you know, we would be sitting around a table in the hospitality room. I'd put the tape recorder in the middle. Sometimes I'd just get them in the hotel lobby or in in their room. But it was much less formal than setting up a video camera and sitting them on on a sofa, you know, and just going through. And don't get me wrong, the Central Connecticut State University has done a wonderful job, you know, doing just that getting some of the uh, the stories of veterans down on on video. You know, but uh, they were very relaxed. And also because I knew after a while some of the some of the names and the places that, you know, it it enabled them to, you know, open up more. And sometimes I would say, you know, look, you know, I I would have to sometimes prod them, you know, and say, look, you know, you're a part of history. Do do you want to you know, take all this with you? when you go, and that usually that helped. I'm talking with Aaron Elson. He's a New Britain resident, a copy editor at the New Britain Herald. He's an oral historian. Um, the stories of his father came back to him when he reached out to his uh, father's uh, tank battalion that he served in in World War II. Um, it's Veterans Day. We wanted to hear some of those clips of veterans that you've interviewed over the years. Uh, the first one that we have is uh, Dan Deal. Tell us a little bit about him. Dan Deal was a lieutenant in my father's tank battalion. He started out as a sergeant in the horse cavalry, and then they were mechanized. And I, I never I never did a full-length sit-down interview with, with Dan. Usually at the three or four reunions, I sit down with him with the tape recorder going. Sometimes another veteran would sit in, you know, and he had a booming voice. You know, he, he really uh, he was a wonderful speaker. And 
he he told some very amusing stories, but you know the war also made him kind of a philosopher. And you know, there's a universal theme that goes through many stories of veterans that there's a bullet with your name on it, or you know, there's nothing you can do. Uh, if it's your time, it's your time. You know, and and so in this particular uh, audio clip, uh, he he talks about that. All right, let's hear this uh, clip from Dan Deal, and I believe he mentions a couple of his fellow soldiers at the top of the clip, Bink and Smith. Let's hear it. And Bink and, and Smith and I walked up on the hill to, to look the area over because we was going to move in there at night, and we wanted to go up in the daytime to see what, what we was, where we was going to have to move into. And we was doing the proper thing. We was walking along with our five-yard interval and all that, but there was a track through the snow where infantry had been walking up there. And here it comes, and a shot come in and throw dirt on us and never exploded. It wasn't time. So he's talking about a time when he could have been injured, but it wasn't the bullet for him. And if I can say one more thing about Dan Deal, because these things over the years, you know, stories came together. That very first story about the friend of uh, Wayne Hissang, uh, the first story that I walked into about his, his buddy from his hometown who was killed, he was killed in Dan Deal's tank and, and on the very first day of combat. And Deal was not wounded, but he, he was the tank commander that day. So he made it home, but did he, in your course of interviewing him, did he ever talk about, you know, sometimes um, in interviews that I've done with veterans, they talk about the ones that are able to come home, you know, they feel a little bit of survivor's guilt, that there's their buddies that some that did not come home. What did he tell you about that? I I didn't interview him about that. Many, many of the interviews that I have, many of the veterans that I've interviewed do talk about that. But I, like I said, I never did the full-length uh you know, soup to nuts interview with Dan. Was Dan able to talk about this incident uh, very soon after he came home or in your course of interviewing so many of these men? Does it take lots of years for them to feel comfortable um, remembering these, these these moments? Yes, it does. You know, many of them you know, just, they got on with their lives. They got married or they, they raised families. They got careers. And they just put it all behind them until they began retiring, until until movies like uh, Saving Private Ryan and books like The Greatest Generation came out, and there was a major push to, you know, talk about it. And But they thought about it every day of their lives. You interviewed another man by the name of Ed Bacafowley. Tell us a little bit about him. Oh, Ed Bacafowley, he was a paratrooper, and he, he was a, you know, he was a large guy, rough and tumble. Uh, he had been a military policeman at uh, Camp Harahan in, in Louisiana, New Orleans. And he didn't like the military, uh, the officers confiscating all the booze from soldiers who brought it back and then living it up in the uh, officers' club. So he volunteered for the paratroopers. And so we're going to hear a little clip about um, him um, remembering the time where he was injured uh, during combat. Let's hear it. We had some battles that were brutal. This one was unbelievable. There must have been, I'd say, 30, 40 machine guns going at any one time. Bullets were just cutting everything apart. 
the mortars are coming in. So we're out on the flank now. I'm trying to work my way back in. So I work over to a hedgerow like. I get to this dirt bank and I climb up on the bank trying to see ahead and I look out there and I see something shine or move out there and I pow, I open up. Next thing I know, boom, the dirt flies up against me. Holy Christ, I get down. Crawl away 10 feet away from there, climb up and the same thing with uh, Hernandez. Get up on the bank again and look, 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 you know, and next to a tree. I'm looking, looking, and see something out there like brush moving. Boom, 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 I open up. Wow, the park and everything flies off the tree. I said, son of a bitch. This guy can see me. I, I didn't know where the hell it was coming from. I go down the third time. I get up again. I get down in the brush. I fire two rounds, two or three rounds. The next thing I know, whang, that was it. I got it. I got nailed beautiful. So Ed was pretty seriously injured? He was wounded. He wasn't that seriously injured. I, I mean, after they brought him back, uh, he had a Luger that he had gotten off a, a German, and he went crazy. I mean, he was still ambulatory, and he took the Luger, and he was running towards the German. He, he had to be restrained, you know, that uh, he was so amped up uh, from, from this. And this was, you know, hours after he was wounded, maybe less. It's interesting, this uh, this particular part of the interview. I mean, he really does take you back to that moment with the sound effects that he uses. Is this something that you noticed um, when you interviewed a lot of these veterans? You know, I, I was listening to these clips in the car. I was playing them for a friend, and I thought, my God, you know, this, this, is, uh, this is like the Morth Radio Hour. You know, these, these, these fellows, they get so, you know, once they begin opening up, they get so animated. They, they have sound effects. One, one fellow talking about, uh, he was from New Orleans uh, or from Louisiana, talking about General Patton, you know, and he said, General Patton had a high-pitched voice. He said, let me tell you, let me tell you one thing. He, like, raised his voice like three or four octaves. You know, they uh, they recreate conversations. They, they give sound effects. So... Uh, but one, again, one thing about Ed, uh, and I, I've always regretted this, I, I promised I would come back because I, I interviewed him on the 50th anniversary of D-Day for the newspaper I worked for at the time. And he said, you know, D-Day wasn't my longest stay. You know, the, the, my longest stay was in the Battle of the Bulge when his platoon was overrun. He was the platoon sergeant, and he had gone back to get something, and he came back, and the, the platoon was gone. You know, some were captured, some were killed. And I said, I promised him I would come back, you know, and get the rest of the story, and I, I never did. He was he died in an auto accident about three years later. Uh, he hit a, his car hit a rock uh, in, that had fallen into the road, and he was hospitalized and never recovered. But... Uh, that that's one regret that I have, but it ha happens often. You know, I, I can't go back, and if I f find something in an interview, you know, there's no, no correcting it or no finding out what happened. But you were able to still uh, get part of his his uh, experience. Uh, oh yes. And record. Do you ever um, follow up with some of his family and about you know the stories that you learned from from these veterans? With some of the families, yes, I've become very close. 
And when you talk about, when we look at this particular story from um, Ed Bacafoli, Bacafoli, um, is this something when he talks about being injured, um, obviously he made it back, is this something he considered his alive day? We hear that term um, when some veterans are wounded um, and they could have died, but they didn't. And uh, no, he didn't talk about that. But the the term "alive day" have you heard that before among some of these uh, World War II veterans? Uh, no, not really. Mm-hmm. No, the, but you know there are terms that yeah. uh, you know. I I heard uh, I I bought a CD of four prisoners of war um, who had been captured and talked about, and, and it was put together by a you know a folk life center. And all four interviews, not one of them said, for you, the war is over. And that was an almost universal thing that, uh, you know, that I would hear in interviewing prisoners of war. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's Veterans Day, and we're reflecting on stories that Aaron Elson has been able to record through the years, stories from World War II veterans, um, men who were part of his father's uh, tank battalion, the 712th. We're going to hear more of these recordings after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up Monday, immigration reform was a big talking point during Donald Trump's presidential campaign. On the next Where We Live, from rhetoric to reality, we'll sit down with experts and immigrants, and we want to hear from you. When it comes to immigration reform, where do you stand? That's on Monday. Today is Veterans Day, and in studio with me is Aaron Elson. He's an oral historian, a copy editor at the New Britain Herald. His father was a World War II veteran, and after he passed away, Elson uh, met up with some of his old uh, battle buddies, so to speak, at these reunions, and then began to dedicate more than 20 years tracking down other veterans and recording their stories. And we wanted to play some of those clips today on Veterans Day. Um, Aaron, you know, we were talking a little bit about the veterans that you interviewed uh, through the years. Um, when we think of veterans, we often think about the service members who make it home. But um, especially during World War II, there were many prisoners of war or POWs. You've interviewed some of them. Tell us about Carnegie Tomasian. Oh, Carnegie Tomasian, he was Armenian. Uh, his family was Armenian. And he was a 19 year 18-year-old uh, gunner on a... B-29, and they were flying on a mission uh, to Thailand to bomb a bridge, and there were six or seven B-29s in this formation, and the the group bombardier uh, was trying to score points and get a promotion, and he they were not carrying a full complement of bombs. So they had 500-pound bombs and 1,000-pound bombs side by side, and they dropped these. And I'm not an engineer, but what happened was that the trajectories of the bombs converged, and two bombs collided below the planes, and six planes were blown out of the sky. And he, this was over uh, Thailand, he became a prisoner of the Japanese in Rangoon, uh, now it's Myanmar, <laughs> in Burma. And he was he was beaten. He was uh, uh, subjected to uh, terrible conditions. And 
he uh, he now he's still alive. Uh, his wife passed away a few years ago, and after she passed away, he was in his eighties. He bought a motorcycle. That, that that's the last <laughs> I've I've heard of him. But he was a a very very uh, you know very strong, uh, good looking uh, fellow, and he's very popular among you know the the veterans community in New Jersey where he lives. So this excerpt of an interview that you did with him, this is um, this is him talking about coming home. Let's hear that clip. So he, the pilot then said, if you want to see a sight, look out your right side window. So? And he went down, he lower, I must have gotten permission to do this, I guess. He, he dove down, way down, and went around the Statue of Liberty. Uh. <laughs> I can't tell you <coughs> what went through my head. Oh, Jesus. I think I, by this time I'd be out. Oh. oh, it was so, it was so profound. You know, like it, I was home, you know. So then I hopped the subway when I got released, and I hopped the subway and came up and, uh, I got up on 91st Street and then I went around my corner and the ball came bouncing to me. Oh, I dropped my bag, my duffel bag, and I picked up the ball. And a little kid comes up and he says, Hey, give me that ball. You want to waltz one up your snot box? <laughs> I was home. <laughs> what, a, what a moment. I mean, he was a prisoner of war for how long? For about uh, six or seven months. And so he... At the at that moment, he probably never thought he would be back in the states to see the Statue of Liberty. And how do you feel when you when you hear that, Wood County? That well, first of all, it it got me all teared up, you know. But that that shows, you know, the the juxtaposition of tears and laughter, you know, from within seconds, you know, that they get so emotional, but you know, telling. Humorous stories, telling sad stories. Sometimes they cry when you think they should be laughing. Sometimes they, they tell something humorous and get all choked up. You know, that, that's one one reason that I love the audio from these interviews. You know, as opposed to, and I and I've you know written and self-published several books. You know, but the the, the audio captures the intensity of what they went through and i've i've heard carnig you know give tell that same story to a group of people very dryly no no emotion you know that uh, he's he's told it many times but you know in the in the one-on-one interview uh, in a relaxed setting and this was really towards the end of the interview which lasted over 2 hours you know all the emotions welled right up. You interviewed another POW. This is a John Swearin. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, I got a phone call one day from a, a friend of mine, a neighbor, uh, 
who was a prisoner of war. He said, I want you to uh, come over. We have some guests for breakfast. So I, I came by, and this fellow, uh, Christian Laveau, a French historian, was visiting, and he had a suitcase. Uh, he had just come over from France, and he was on his way to the 90th Infantry Division reunion, but he was going to make a couple of stops. And it came up over breakfast that in the suitcase there were some pieces of an airplane that had crashed, a B-26, and he was going to bring them to survivors, you know, to family members of the crew. And one of the crew was John Swearin. He was the only surviving member of that crew. He had been the tail gunner. And he, uh, the tail section was shot off of his plane with him in it, but, you know, it was open, and he was able to bail out, became a prisoner of war. And he endured this lengthy, at the end of World War II, or t towards the end, the Germans were afraid that uh, the prison camps would be overrun and all the guards and officials would be executed by the Russians. So they marched them all the way across Germany in the winter to, uh, so that they could be surrendered to the British and the Americans <laughs> on this march. Now, what I was saying about humor, John had a buddy named Lloyd Alexander. And in the prison camp, Stalagluft IV, they had read a book about the Donner Pass, the uh, the group of Mormons who wound up cannibalizing uh, themselves. And in this, towards the end of this horrendous march across across Germany in horrid conditions, starvation, they went to bed one night out, out in a field, and John made a joke. He said to his buddy Lloyd, you know, if you wake up without an arm, you'll know where it went. And he fell asleep, woke up, and his friend was gone, and he never saw him again. <laughs> and, that, and that haunted him for the rest of his life, that he made this lighthearted comment. But John... When he was liberated, somebody from the Red Cross said, uh, do, do you know your phone number? Uh, it's Mother's Day. Do you know your phone number in the U.S.? And he said, I have no money. We'll take care of it, they said. So they called his, his family, and his mother answered the phone, and he said, this is your son, your liberated son, John. And there was a moment of silence, and his mother said, who is this? My son was killed in the war. And finally, his, his father got on the phone, and he uh, there was something that he said. There, there was a dish his mother made, which happened to be pierogies. And he said, I can't wait to, you know, come home and have some pierogies. And so, you know, they realized he was, had not been killed in the war. You know, so anyway, he the clip can take it from there. And I think we don't have enough time now oh. to, to listen to his clip. But um, before we go, you know, I wanted to ask you, Aaron, you know, so often on, on Veterans Day, we think about um, the stories of, of service members. Um, but we don't think about it often during during the year. What would be your advice uh, to people who are listening now who have veterans in their families, who want them to feel comfortable opening up, telling their stories? Well, for me, every day is... Veterans say every day is Memorial Day, you know, I, because I work with this constantly. But just ask, you know, uh, 
I was at a uh, Iwo Jima Memorial uh, event uh, about two years ago, and here's this kid interviewing his grandfather, uh, and Ray Green, who was a very popular veteran in New Britain. He's since passed away. But the kid's asking his grandfather some questions, and I said, uh, you know, to the boy's father, you know, tell him to, you know, get a tape recorder and record it. Little did I know, he had his cell phone, and he was recording the whole thing, you know? So, but they, they want to, they want their stories to be known, you know, and, and they want it passed on to the next couple of generations. So just ask if you, if you learn of a veteran, if you read about him in the newspaper, call them up, you know, and say, look, tell me more about it. And they, at least, you know, when I've called veterans out of the blue, uh, whose stories I've heard, you know, they've been very willing to talk about it. Now, you've done a lot of recordings. You've also put a lot of the transcripts into books. If our listeners wanted to, to read the work you've done, where can they go? Well, I've, I've also done a lot of audio books of the original, you know, the, the original voices. Oral history audio books. I have a blog and I have a website. The website was taken from my first, uh, first book about my father's tank battalion, so I called it tankbooks.com, one word, tankbooks.com. And that's like a comprehensive, it's got a lot of transcripts. And the Oral History Audio Books is a blog. If you Google it, you know, it usually comes up. Uh, and we'll link to our website at wmpr.org slash where we live. Aaron Elson, so nice to meet you. And thank you so much for sharing some of these stories with us today. Thank you. I'm a big fan of the show. I listen to it very often. Well, we appreciate your time. And again, we can continue this conversation, find out more about Aaron Elson's uh, interviews through the years at wmpr.org slash where we live. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. And our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Executive producer is Katie Tolarski. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend. <laughs>